Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from and what drives them forward. A lot of startups uh, and a lot of companies and a lot of designers in general, they're extremely good at productivity. But it's not always that the productivity list is uh, actually also what makes you move fast. So you can do 10 things on your to-do list, but actually often it's only two of those things that actually gives you progress. The rest is just productivity. What is it actually that makes these projects move forward? And what is just a cool thing that you can show your friends? That is, that's fucking hard. <laughs> In this episode, I sit down with Kove Paul, Managing Director of Space 10, whose recent projects include a study into communal living and the future of meatballs. They are backed by IKEA after all. Intertwining the fields of art, technology and design, Space 10 works to evolve the human habitat so that it can adjust to the new urban realities. This was recorded in the basement of their workshop in the Meatpacking District in Copenhagen. Welcome, Stories of Growth, Kova. Uh, we are here in the basement of uh, Space 10 in Copenhagen, <laughs> surrounded by some very big machinery. Um, very excited to be here been following Space 10 for a number of years um, and uh, really excited to have Kova on the, on the show. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So welcome. Um, why don't we just start for people who don't know Space 10 uh, with a quick, a quick introduction as to what it is mm. and what you're trying to do. Yeah, so I, I guess we have actually tried to explain what we do uh, for three years now without really having a good explanation, <laughs> but I'll try to do my best. So uh, for now, what we, what we do is that we, we call ourselves a future living lab and we, we are on a mission to try to create better and more sustainable ways of living. Uh, we are an independent lab. We are funded by uh, IKEA Global. Um, and uh, what it means is that it gives us some, you could say, some uh, strength and some foundation for us to, uh, to think a bit more long term and think a bit more outside the commercial framework when we try to explore this extremely broad question. And uh, to zoom in a little bit, Space 10 works in like these three pillars. So we, we do research where we try to understand what the heck is going on in this chaotic world. And then we try to see patterns in that chaos, um, which we believe is our finest job actually, is to, to help see patterns in, a, in an extremely chaotic world. Um, but we also have what we call Space 10 Design, where we then try to, to actually take those uh, opportunities and, and build test prototype, pilot new, entirely new solutions um, that can be technology or it can be salad bar where the salad is grown inside the salad bar or it can be uh, augmented reality apps or new ways of being more mindful in a co-living space so it's it's quite diverse and uh, i think the last part which makes us quite different is that we are a quite open lab so the majority of innovation labs they often have a fingerprint scanner for coming in and nobody uh, dare to say anything before you have signed a damn nda and mm. I think, you know, for us, we just believe that uh, collaboration beats competition in this new world. And, and, and we have looked upon storytelling and communication as actually a strategic mean instead of a, a challenge. Uh, so we are very, very open and uh, 
we are a small team, but they also have a saying that if we're the smartest in a room, we're in the wrong room. So the whole model is actually to try to create some sort of interface for innovation where we bridge IKEA with the, with the outside world. That's great. And I mean, where do we, where do we start? Um, uh, maybe one or two of your favorite projects, mm. because you've covered many. You mm. were up in our space last mm. year growing salad mm. in our studio, yeah. which I loved. I still talk about. Like, they did what? Yeah. Um, so maybe one or two of your most favorite projects, because it is diverse, and yeah. anybody who would check out the site, they will see that. But, I mean, on your side, which a couple of your favorite. I think uh, one of my favorites is uh, actually also one of our first projects. Uh, we called it Tomorrow's Meatball. And uh, it started with a, 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 like a, one of our first research uh, projects around um, water. And actually it started in a completely different uh, setting uh, around uh, water at home. Um, but we quickly realized like how much water is water actually, you know, you see these numbers and nobody what actually... What do you mean how much water is water? No, you say uh, how much you can consume? save a thousand liters of water. I don't know how much a thousand liters of water is. How much do I spend in my shower every day? So we, we kind of like at already in the beginning, uh, we got confirmed that research is kind of broken in a sense that the research is there, but the translation of the research into something people can relate to is often completely disappearing. So uh, what we did is that we did a big project around where do we actually spend a lot of water, and obviously food was one of them. Um, we then ended up with a quite big, boring report, like everybody else. And we have always been saying we don't want to do the, the fucking McKinsey report where, you know, you do 500 pages and nobody ends up reading it. Um, so we came up with this notion of uh, playful research. Uh, basically, the idea that research should not only be for, uh, for your right, but also the left side of your brain. And we should help, you could say, translate these hardcore facts into some more uh, visual, uh, portable stories. Um, and then we, uh, we shot some pictures of what we would believe is the future of the meatball. Uh, so wait, how did you get from water to meatballs? Yeah, good question actually, and, <laughs> and I think this is a good. I know, point. I know, uh, I know. You're sponsored by IKEA. There's the obvious meatball connection yeah, yeah, yeah. there, but I no. But um, what we realized, and that's obviously a slight detail here, is a burger spends around 2,400 liters of water to be made. So right. that's uh, for some more than one and a half months of showering if you take a shower every day for, for around a eight burger? minutes. So yes, so a burger in itself is crazy. You eat uh, quite a lot of burgers, and uh, or at least I do. And uh, <laughs> I, when I realized how much water that was, I kind of felt stupid because you know you f you think about saving water when you brush your teeth and, and stuff like that. And at the end, you know, if we don't have the right insights, we can't take the right choices. Yeah. So we then zoomed in on meat, but we also realized we don't want to be the meat shamers, <laughs> uh, and we don't want to be extremists, but we want to show what could be potential sustainable alternatives to that. Yeah. And obviously, IKEA is famous for their meatballs. They sell uh, 1.3 billion meatballs a year, something like that. So it's 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 quite a massive business. And so, how much water uh, does that use? Yeah, that uh, <laughs> I actually don't have the number, but uh, <laughs> but quite a lot, right? <laughs> so uh, so we started playing around with like how could we tell this story, um, and uh, we ended up using the meatball as a canvas. Everybody has some sort of cultural connection to the meatball. It's uh, in spaghetti in Italy, and it's in kufta, and it's in, you know, every nation has some sort of meatball. And we took these meatballs and we projected these future trends. So there was a crispy buck bowl, and we had the urban farmer's bowl, and the... Uh, 
the powdered uh, uh, soylent ball and you know so all these food trends we projected into these uh, visual meatballs and we shared that story online we uh, completely surprised IKEA because they didn't really anticipate that this story would blow up mm-hmm. I think we had a reach on almost 800 million people on that project and we spent 5,000 euros on it so like the the whole thing was just super chaotic and one British uh, newspaper wrote that IKEA is now planning on removing the meatball from the menu and replacing it with box so there was also full blown <laughs> panic inside but but at the end what it did was uh, a few things like uh, a uh, it showed how much uh, design and visual communication matters in this new world. Uh, it shows that boring uh, research elements can actually be something a lot of people they dare to engage with as long as you uh, put it down from this very elitist and very intellectual pillar that often research uh, finds itself on. Yeah. Uh, and third, it showed for, uh, for, for us in IKEA that like being open about our work can actually uh, do a lot of good. Um, so it, it, it was a project that created a quite strong foundation and it's a project that a lot of people still refer to when they, they see us and meet us. And, and, and then I also like that it just cost 5,000 euros, you know, like sometimes I think there's inflation, how much money we need to do something with impact. Um, so yeah, that's for sure one of my favorites. Okay, yeah. good to know and good to hear the story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> coming to the... The inception of Space Ten. Mm. Um, what was that moment? You know, that idea, that founding thought. Mm. Uh, you know, the conversation. You know, how, was it them coming to you guys? Mm. Or was it you guys going to them? Mm. Maybe just talk about that. The founding of, of Space yeah. Ten, and then the relationship with IKEA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the good question. So actually, it started uh, many years ago with uh, one of the other co-founders and the original founder called Carla. She used to run a, another visual uh, agency called Art Rebels. And uh, through that company, she actually made a collaboration with IKEA on designing a, a range of products. And uh, that was kind of like the first Vitality collection IKEA actually did. Nowadays, they do a lot of branded collection, and, but, but this was one of their first. And the CEO at, at uh, that part of IKEA, and I'm not going to go into the details, but I think there's more than 400 companies in the IKEA ecosystem. and. Uh, one of them is called IKEA Sweden. They make all the products. They do 2,000 new products a year. They have 10,000 products in, in total. Uh, and, uh, and she made a collection with that company. The CEO of that company then became the CEO of the entire group of IKEA. And he reached out again to Carla and said, hey, now I have this new role and I would like to find a way to work with innovation outside the, the current business. Uh, do you have some ideas? Uh, and she basically came up with this super simple model with one of our other colleagues around how we could use a year to explore what that would mean. Uh, and he said yes, and then uh, me and uh, another guy, we joined in from, from day one, and we spent seven months touring IKEA, basically trying to get to know this uh, beast of a company that is a quarter of a million people and uh, the same revenue as Facebook and have production and supply chain and a lot of challenges, but also a lot of opportunities. And then at the end, it just didn't work, to be honest. Like, we ended up being uh, consultants in a company that ate us for breakfast, you know? Like, we had no possibility of getting stuff through. And then suddenly this space uh, here in Copenhagen, where we are sitting right now, it, uh, it, it, uh, it was up for lease. And we were like, this could be an amazing space for us. So we did something radical. We burned our wings and we said, fuck it, let's go all in. So we went to a little work camp, the four of us, and we uh, pitched the idea 
of setting up also a physical manifestation of Space 10 and not just uh, exploring it as a method and said like we should have a brand, we should call it Space 10, it should not be called Intra IKEA Concept Innovation Lab or something like that and it should for sure not be called Experience Center, which apparently right now is some sort of inflation and all brands need experience centers. Um, and we, we pitched the idea and um, after a, f a few conversations it actually went through. And then uh, suddenly we had a space and we had six months to open and it, the space was full of fish and lobsters all over. Actually, where we're sitting right now used to be a freezer for lobsters. So, and we didn't have a brand, we didn't have a logo, we didn't have a website, we didn't have a method, we had nothing actually. Uh, and six so months wait, after so we what, opened what everything. Year, what year is this? And fall 2015. Okay. Yeah, so almost three years ago now. And that was six months, Yeah. just craziness. Intense, intense very intense. So, <laughs> so that was just three of you then? I mean, at that point, we were like four uh, co-founders, and then we were four or five people who uh, who worked on, on on specific projects and were part of the the build-up. Yeah, and then now we are almost thirty in the in the city, and and we work with maybe as many full-time freelance uh, on specific projects. So it's been quite a, a journey so far. That's amazing. So the different projects mm -hmm. um, or labs, or, mm -hmm. you know concepts, developments. Talk about, I'm, I'm just curious to see, again, if this was the inception of Space 10, mm. what are the inception of those those projects? Mm. You know, what's that, some pitches you an idea, you're like, you see something, you're like, how does, how, how does, how, how do they manifest and, and come to life? So I think, you know, one of the- Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But and then I guess weaving that into the residency mm. program, mm. you know, how these projects come together mm. and you know, how, how someone can get involved. So I think the biggest uh, question is like, how do you actually work with design and creativity in, in this age, right? Like, I think this is the big boss of all conferences and all big senior management meetings. At the end, it's about like, how do you work with creativity and, and design, but also how do you work with people nowadays when they don't want to sit nine to five they don't want to move to a shitty suburban town in a big office space with a key card and you know there's a lot of challenges and, and for us that's kind of like the essence of what we're trying to figure out is can we actually have structure and progress in an extreme chaotic environment yeah so what we're trying to do is that we're trying to organize uh, the chaos by having a, a very open and free way of working um, very concrete, what it means is that when it comes to, for example, uh, research, our philosophy is that research should, of course, be legit, but it should also be accessible and democratized to as many as possible. And that means that suddenly your whole mindset of how you should make research and how you should conduct it changes from having two guys sitting in a corner doing a hardcore data analysis to inviting residencies in from Shanghai or from Mumbai to hosting programs and hackathons and lectures where knowledge is not just uh, aggregated, but it's also shared and discussed. And uh, for Space 10, that's kind of like one of our biggest uh, functions is how can we not only uh, facilitate research, but also translate research into something that is being used. And we have then different formats for that. So we have a lecture program, we have a residency program. We have uh, like digital formats and spaces for how that sh uh, should be shared. Uh, but what we also have is, um, you could say, this dilemma on how do you also take this into impact? Uh, how do we make sure we are not just a playground where people have fun, but nothing actually comes out of it? 
and uh, we discuss a lot this whole and so did you measure that in terms of impact yeah we we are we are we are measuring it uh, on on a few different objectives like so our you could say responsibility for ikea is obviously we need to show some impact sometime and uh, right now it's being measured by three elements so we measure the cultural impact we have on the group level so how can we spark a strong innovation culture within the 250,000 co-workers that works at IKEA today. And that we obviously do not only by being here and hosting a lot of stuff, but also sharing our research and findings with, with key partners. But we also have a brand impact. So like, how are we able to uh, reposition IKEA as a more playful and future-oriented brand? And we don't do that by trying to brand IKEA, but by actually branding Space 10. And by having Space 10, IKEA will look as they actually uh, believe that there is a future beyond what they work on today. And the third one is obviously business impact. So like, what can we do in order to move the business agenda forward? And here we're not looking into current business, but like what the concept of IKEA might be able to look like tomorrow. Uh, so, so you could say that we have our research arm where we try to not only do research, but try to make it more visual and playful. And then we build that community uh, while doing it. And then uh, what we are right now working on is what is then our strategy to actually design these solutions into real life, uh, where we have a big discussion at the moment around what is the difference between productivity and progress. Uh, and I think, you know... What, what is the difference? Yeah, that's the, that's the question, <laughs> right? But I think, you know, um, a lot of startups uh, and a lot of companies and a lot of designers in general, they're extremely good at productivity. They're extremely good at to-do lists and on showing reports on how much they have done. But it's not always that the productivity list is uh, actually also what makes you move fast. So you can do 10 things on your to-do list, but actually often it's only two of those things that actually gives you progress. The rest is just productivity. Uh, and if you want to work in this very free space, in this creative space, you, you need to, as a leader, uh, help support the creatives on what is it actually that makes these projects move forward and what is just a cool thing that you can show your friends. And, and um, that is, that's fucking hard. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but I think it's, it's important because you, like in creative industries, often there's also a tendency to work long, long hours, right? Like a lot of people we have here, they, they come from agency worlds or they come from institutional worlds and they all come here because of two things. A, they don't want to work for a client where they don't believe their vision is, uh, is good enough. So a lot of people who work for a bank or for a sugar company or something else, it, it, it doesn't have that aspirational feeling anymore. But second of all, they are just tired of working from 9 till 12 at night every day. Uh, and we believe that we, we have a very healthy culture. We, we go home at 6. You know, that's uh, the latest we, we often are here. But I feel that our progress often beats a lot of the creative agencies, even though they keep their people at the office for maybe almost 50% more. Mm. So uh, I think the whole point of this, as you can hear, is a, f is a crazy chaotic environment to work in. But, but if you find those small patterns in that chaos, like uh, what do we actually need to focus on? How can we make a happy team? And how can we translate our work to... to to people who maybe are not experts per se, then, then you have some pillars that starts working. That's super interesting. And the clarity of destination or progress, mm. I mean, just observing, um, 
is all about the purpose. Exactly. And clarity of destination mm. so you know where you are progressing mm. to. And I think to your point, an analogy of other agencies, other businesses, that's never clear. Mm. Or it might be clear, but no, it doesn't align mm. with modern-day values mm. and modern-day workforce. And that's yeah, certainly and when we are, you know, we're talking to to businesses or to brands, it's, it's starting with these fundamentals. And, you know, there's a lot of businesses that, that get it right. Yeah. Um, but no, that's, that's an astute observation of, you know, progress versus productivity. Yeah, and I also think, you know, uh, the, the founders of Pixar, they, they said something on point, I think, when they, they wrote a, a book, I think, 10 years ago, and they say the future is not a destination, it's a direction. And I think, you know, we work with the future here, but, like, we need to also realize the future is unfortunately not a static thing. We'll never reach the future. <laughs> It will always be in front of us, right? So, like, when you work with things that are quite far out, you need to understand that you will never reach that destination, which is something that can be quite uh, frustrating for a creative that often likes to celebrate a final design or a final product. Um, and and this this notion of of having a direction rather than a destination is actually what I think has has been one of our focus points. Um, we also have a, a say in the end of our playbook that like uh, Space 10 was never built to last but to evolve uh, because things are just changing so fast nowadays, and our role is to change with it. Um, but for a person who comes from a traditional design background, who's used to classical design, making a process, finalizing a product, celebrating that, putting the picture online, showing it to your boss and, and have a beautiful reception where it's on display, that time is just over. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that means that you need to have a, a complete different process for still creating that satisfaction in the team when you, when you at least reach certain milestones, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about you. Yeah. Um, a bit on your your history, mm. where you grew up. Um, really, trying to just get a bit of understanding in terms of where we are today, mm. uh, in terms of your 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 personal background. Mm. Yeah. I mean, where do we start? I have a really uh, random life. Actually, I'm I'm originally born, raised in Copenhagen, half Danish, half Iranian. Um, I uh, actually used to uh, be in a, in a huge uh, boy band when I was 12 to 15. I'm glad you brought that up uh, because I was going to. Yeah, no, but... Uh, B-boys, yeah. right? Exactly. I used to break dance a lot, like hardcore <laughs> break, uh, actually. And then uh, at some point we, we were breaking for, uh, for this like Danish act in television. So wait, what, age, what age is this? 12. Yeah. 12. Yeah, I was a young kiddo, yeah. And then uh, there was this like talent show where we thought we would have uh, submitted this uh, rap song, which was not really a rap song, it was primarily a bad pop song, but uh, we were like three young guys with a lot of uh, passion for, for breaking and we just wanted to take over the world and uh, by chance we actually got uh, accepted and we signed a deal with Universal Music before we went on stage and the day after, it was before social media, so that TV show was broadcasted to the entire country. And the day after, we were basically uh, famous. I had a uh, girl sleeping outside my door. We played uh, 80 concerts a year, 50,000 people audiences. We sold a quarter of a million albums. Uh, so it was quite a, a crazy time. But I never wanted to, uh, to be famous like that in this. And I don't even sing, you know, so. <laughs> 
so when I started high school and, and, and where like the voice was changing and priorities were changing, um, we, we, we stopped. Um, but in the meantime, I actually started my first company, which is, I think, the, the background for why I'm also here today, which uh, was called KNK, and it was uh, for sure not legal. <laughs> Uh, but we uh, we found a way to uh, to cheat all the boogies uh, with an algorithm, so we could actually take out money when they offered the bonuses. So, so uh, wait, 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 what do you mean? Yo, know, so the, uh, back then uh, in Denmark, at least, like the bookies, all the, the, the big the boogies, boogies uh, right. for, for, for sports betting, yeah, yeah, exactly. They had these campaigns that you could get uh, and double up your money if you signed up and made an account. But you obviously had to play those money through ten times, and that never happened. Uh, but the security on these platforms was super bad back then. So we found a way to uh, to transfer the money that we got through poker rooms to another account where we actually had played it through. And we ended up, I think, earning maybe 10, 15,000 uh, euros in, in a year. And we were 14 at that time, right? So we uh, we were doing this big business and we made friends, actually. Uh, we asked friends, hey, if you make a bank account and a credit card, we, we can double your money in a week. And, you know, it was very sketchy. <laughs> and then one day I received a letter from Bitson that uh, we were accused of white laundering money. And uh, we freaked out, obviously. And my my friend's mom was quite crazy, so we had to go to my mom to tell it. And she freaked out both on them and us. and. So that was kind of like a business that they stopped after a few years. But it actually paid for a trip to Benabeo where we saw the last game of Sudan. So that was pretty nice. Uh, but that was the first uh, time when we started doing business. So your business. first business was a was a, an illegal money laundering business? Yeah, I would say it was not illegal, but for sure not legal either. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, that's so that's how, how I got started. So you went perfectly to go yeah. into the world of being yeah, exactly. an entrepreneur. So, uh, and then after that, uh, it went fast and I, I made a, a company called Clashy with a bunch of friends where we started hosting uh, raves. Uh, we bought a tank and hosted raves in factories and had a, a lot of techno music. Then after that, I quit that and we uh, opened a fashion magazine that I published in, in Copenhagen and Paris, moved to Paris, and it, that went completely wrong and everybody kind of split it up. And that was a, a, at least an experience of really making sure you build the right team around the company. So there has been good learnings for, for each step. And when I then came back, it became a bit more serious and I started my first serious company, which was called Retailing, which was this uh, online video platform where we had editors from around the world who helped uh, aggregate and curate these videos. So instead of going the algorithmic way as, as YouTube, we wanted to have uh, real people with real good taste to, to help you pick what you should watch. And, and we, I think when we peaked, we had 300,000 daily visits on that platform. But uh, I didn't want to sell uh, advertising on it. Um, so it was kind of a challenge and we had a lot of conversations with the investors, but at the end we uh, we didn't uh, pursue the, the investment of it, we, we bootstrapped it. And then in the middle of all that, actually the opportunity of Space 10 came. So uh, then I, I, I stopped all the other projects. And as a side story to all these companies, I also studied at the Danish School of Media and Journalism and also worked as a digital for a, a community agency that made a lot of digital products called Revolt. So actually, in that phase, I also had uh, my first and hopefully last, uh, you know, you could say, overwork 
break down with a, a, a heavy heart beating and, and stuff like that, um, which I think has helped me a lot going forward to, to feel that in an early age. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and you're only a young guy now. Yeah, so it's been a crazy, <laughs> crazy ride on, until now. Yeah. So uh, that's fascinating. And of that journey, any residual you know, takeaways in terms of tips or just mm. you know, in, in reflecting things you definitely wouldn't do again? I mean, other than the semi-illegal stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, any, anything that stands out, they'd be like... Phew. Done that, definitely not going to do that again. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, there's definitely been a few uh, traits. Like one is that uh, you really need to be careful on who you work with, especially if it's friends. Like uh, it can work amazingly, but it can also ruin a lot. And and, uh, hopefully work will not be the only driver of your life. So you have to really have a respect for that when you start new, new businesses. The other one that I really learned is that it's it's quite healthy to always have an enemy. And uh, it, this seems very cynical, but like, uh, for example, the fashion magazine I opened was because that we were a big group of young creatives and the big established fashion magazines, they refused to involve us. They didn't want to, they had their own little club. So the, the, the enemy became the established fashion industry and there was nobody above the age of 28 who was allowed to touch the magazine beyond the printing press. So every photographer, every stylist, every writer, they were, they were young people and we were all not just on a mission to create a magazine, but we, were, we, we deliberately made our release party on the same day as the big established one too. <laughs> Uh, and what happened, like, nobody came to that party and everybody came to ours, including some of those. And Obviously. And I think that is, it's important that you have those uh, enemies, but it should never, of course, be people that are enemies. It should be ideas or established uh, processes that you want to fight. Uh, because today there's so much wrong in the world, and, and uh, instead of just doing your own little cool thing, if you can do that while trying to fight uh, and rebel, not against something, but for something, then... Uh, uh, the passion and the drive is is easier to also uh, share with others along the way. Coming back to purpose, mission, mm. goals, you know, helping with mm. that focus of destination, mm. that makes sense. Uh, on this journey, um, your journey, have there have there been any any mentors, advisors, mm. you know, people that you look up to in that process to really help shape and define, I mean, who you are as an individual. Mm. Uh, but also what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yes, I mean, uh, for sure, and a lot. I, I, when, when, when I started uh, working with Space 10, I started as head of digital innovation. I was 25, and uh, like all the people around the table was plus 50, right? So, you know, there was a lot of anxiety on, I didn't know what KPI meant, you know, what is that short for, you know? So all these shortened, random, nerdy words, um, but also like how to feel calm in your decisions. And I've, I've, I would say that especially Carla, who is the, the, the original founder of Space 10 and who's now moving up to a more uh, board kind of role where she's new, new ventures are also being pursued. But she's definitely been, uh, been supporting and helping me develop for, the, for not only the last three years, but I've known her since I was 17 in one of my first startups. And I think these people who are not only helping you professionally, but also helping you find out how to stay true to your, to your own values along the way are 
are the best. I found a lot of mentors also who have helped me very professionally, but it's for sure the ones who have helped me uh, listen to my compass or my values along the way that has been been the strongest. And then there's been another guy called Jordan who who's the say innovation manager within IKEA. He's uh, above 60 and is a very charismatic uh, individual in IKEA who's been there for many years and, and his responsibility has also been to help us navigate that maze and find out how we should pick what battle. And, and these kind of people you meet along the way, uh, you don't realize it in the now, but when you see yourself progress, it becomes very clear who's been, been part of building that up. Yeah. Interesting. Which also is a responsibility now, of course, to make sure you pass on to to new people. We just hired a 22-year-old guy from from Canada, right? And I see a lot of the same similarities of like being excited, being good, but on the same time needing help maybe on on adjusting. And, and that, that I think will be the new interesting uh, area also for Space 10. Like how do we take the original culture and bring it into to way more people? Student becomes the teacher. Yeah, I would say I'm still too young to be the teacher, but uh, but but uh, I'll find a teacher somewhere <laughs> one day. Um, great. So, where should we go next? I'm going to come back to some of the projects, mm. and one particular that I was just lost in for many hours was the future of co-living mm. um, project which you did with in partnership with an architect uh, yeah Anton and Irene yeah and um, uh, well, two points one it's it's great to hear how you articulate the the importance of accessibility with research mm. and you know we find that with with our research mm. that we do it's 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 ensuring that it's not a 300 slide PowerPoint and so the whole experience of even mm. just discovering it, which is, you know, I was hours on it, um, is it, phenomenal. But it is also, I guess, the point is just how relevant a concept that is 40 years old mm. is today. Yeah. Um, so it'd be great just to uh, hear a little bit more about that project specifically, mm. how it came about. And, and you talk about impact you know, really what you've seen off the back of it in terms of how it's changing perception or really how, you know, how, what does that future look like yeah. in terms of co-living? Because there's a lot of talk about it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, a lot of a uh, lot of talk about co-living and it's and a bit, You know, it's there's too much talk yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. There's just not enough action. Yeah. So maybe if you could chat about that. Yeah, so um, the, the original project started because obviously uh, how we live together is extremely relevant for us and especially the constellations of uh, what a home means and what a home is today. Um, so um, we believe at Space 10 that basically nobody can predict the future, but anyone can be part of shaping it. And we need to create the tools for people to take part of that conversation. And that's what we do with these partners. So Anson and Irene is a... Uh, amazing uh, design studio out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, they have been on big studios, now they have their own and they made an original documentary around co-living because Irene from Anson and Irene used to live in a, in a, in a co-living space uh, uh, back in Amsterdam many years ago and I loved that original project they did so I reached out very spontaneous and said I love that project, we need to work together and she was very skeptical in the beginning who's this guy, what is this company uh, but after a while, we realized, okay, we have a complete shared passion for this subject, and 
what we realized was that we are not asking enough questions around how people actually would like to live. It often ends up being the developers and the architects who takes these maybe sometimes uh, business or financially or elitist decisions on this is what we believe is good. Um, and we, we decided we wanted to make a survey on how people would like to live in the year 2030 if they had to live together. And most importantly, what would they be willing to share? Uh, and uh, yeah, we basically made this survey and we asked a bunch of people online. I think we have for, for, from yeah, all over the world right now and thousands of submissions. And what it did was that it gave us a bit perspective on actually what people would like. Uh, and then we compared that with what is actually the current offer. And obviously, co-living is a, is a big buzz at the moment. But also how it changes, right? Exactly. the countries. Exactly, exactly. And that, and that to me, is yeah. one of the most fascinating yeah. results. And you can map it. And Exactly. And, and the British being prudish, yeah, whereas yeah, the yeah, Americans yeah. are like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, we just share whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, but I think that's the, that's the interesting part, right? Like, we are billions of people on this planet, and, and uh, we are all very, very different and all very, very alike. So how do we actually want to, how do we dream of living? And for us, the problem with uh, housing right now, it's been very much focused on solving problems. But uh, we are building these smaller and smaller units and everything is more and more compact and uh, it doesn't really uh, strive to enable any dreams of how we would love to live. And if you look at the survey and if you actually see, everybody would actually like to share something even though the majority don't share that much today. But also that country by country, it is extremely different how yeah. people would like to live and also the degree of what they are willing to share. So uh, for us, it was, uh, it was for sure not a project where we would uh, get a solution out of it, but just a project to ask a bunch of questions. And now we have taken that into a, a second phase where we're actually exploring more uh, tangible solutions for how we could come up with a, a framework but oh, uh, you could argue and no word no bad words about uh, we work at all but like i think a lot of people would maybe expect that we would come up with a, a new co-living space that is a more affordable uh, we work with ikea furniture and uh, just by doing all this uh, study and research has shown us that that's for sure not what we should do if, if we should make something that is truly affordable and and are inclusive for for, for the many um, but it gave us a lot of good insights. Um, so maybe touch on a couple of those insights mm. in terms of the takeaways or where yeah, that, so where, what, what that future could be. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest takeaway was that uh, I think it was only 3% globally of the people we, we surveyed out of uh, 10, 20,000 people that uh, said that they didn't want to share anything. Even though today... Only 3% said they didn't want to share anything. Yeah, but if you look today, the majority don't share anything. I mean, most people in a building don't even which share means, the internet. <laughs> right, which, which means 97% of people do want to share stuff. Exactly, and uh, so, so that was a crazy insight around why is it we don't share more? And this is not, we're not talking about your toilet and bed. It could be internet, for example. Um, and the other point that was interesting is that uh, a lot of people, they would prefer to live in way smaller co-living scenarios than the ones that are on the market. I think it's like a, a less than 20 people would be the preferred choice, right? So the so, number of people within the setup, yeah. within the building or within the... Yeah, they the, wanted smaller communities where people can remember each other's names and, and not these like hundreds of people who live with a huge shared space in the ground floor where you feel maybe more at a hotel than actually in a real community. So people are more interested in the village aspect of co-living than the big 
um, the big space where people can live in hundreds of spaces all around the world with one rent, it doesn't seem that that is actually uh, the majority of the people who actually want that. Obviously, the creatives with a laptop that can travel anywhere, maybe that works for them. But And the third one we also found out was that actually a lot of people, they would love to not only live with their own age group. Uh, so this idea of cross-generational co-living and the idea of not only living with a bunch of teenagers, if you are a teenager, but actually living with with people all around uh, the spectrum from 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 kids to to elderly and 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 for us something that is extremely aspirational actually why should we design cities into becoming age groups it, it it's not natural actually and uh, if you look at the markets today all the the propositions of co-living spaces are very focused on very specific groups of people where you can identify with that community it's the startup co-living space, or it's the vegan co-living space, and it's the student co-living space. It's the elderly homes. And uh, I think, you know, the, the original exciting thing of, of a city is, for me, the diversity of the city and the perspectives that many residents can bring, um, which doesn't seem to be reflected right now in a lot of the current office. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's a great project that builds on that, which is around... Um, co-living but within specific apartments mm. of uh, and the rent is paid for you know, or, or, sorry the rent is uh, managed by you know sharing skills mm. so you know there's an elderly couple mm. and there's a young mm. dude and you know if he fixes the TV yeah, 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 you yeah. know it's 50, yeah. 50 quid off yeah. the rent um, and so there's some really nice dynamics mm. which are supportive and certainly in terms of you know, future generations mm. and how we live and how we will co-live yeah. um, are, are starting to come through. Yeah. But you know, there will only be more people on this planet and we're not, unless you know, Elon works out how we're going to get to Mars, um, you know, yeah. we're staying on this planet. Yeah, yeah. So, and even if we could go to Mars, would we seriously like to live there, right? <laughs> would, would you? <laughs> I, I wouldn't for sure not live at Mars. I think it looks like a very shitty planet, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously it's a nice plan B, but uh, I, I, I would for sure prefer to, to stay on Earth. <laughs> okay, great. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah. A couple of final points. Yeah. Um, what's the best way of uh, someone contacting you? Uh, email. I'm actually quite old-fashioned in, in that sense. I, the whole messenger, Facebook, and all the social media, I forget where the conversations is taking place. So if you want to reach me, uh, it's just my front name, uh, first name, at spacetend.io. Great. And finally... Is there anybody you could recommend that you would like to hear come on the show? Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, maybe I have two uh, different, very different personalities. Uh, I would for sure suggest John Maeda because that's one of my big uh, heroes. Uh, um, as is mine. Yeah, so I big love fan. his whole uh, philosophy of uh, art is a question to a problem, design is a solution to a problem, and how he classifies design in, 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 in different ways in his focus on inclusivity. And if you want something who's a bit more uh, crazy than... Uh, Lucy McRae from, from UK, the, the body architect and artist. Uh, I don't know, know her that much uh, myself. I know some of the authors do, but 
she she seems to do some 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 crazy shit, uh, and she seems to have a, a what do you say, a crumbled mind, is <laughs> a Danish term. I don't know if you oh, can really? say that in English. <laughs> what does that mean? It means like you have a piece of paper that you you, you know, do this with. So there is a lot of edges and random stuff going on at the same time. Uh, crumbled mind. A crumbled mind. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Kave, this has been great. Um, no, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Good man. luck with the future of Space Town. We're going to be following it closely. Um, always a pleasure. All thanks, right, man. Great. Thanks.